0: The following is a message by Dr. James Renahan from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John's Gospel, chapter 15. Listen to the Word of God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Amen. May God's blessing be on this reading from his holy word. Let's pray together. O Lord, would you come to us now in these brief moments and bless us as we think about your word. May your spirit come now and help us to understand and change us be Christ like, we pray in His name. Amen. Jesus is with His disciples just after leaving the upper room. Judas is gone, and Jesus knows that His time with His disciples is brief. Perhaps as they walk to the Mount of Olives where He was betrayed, He saw a vine suggesting this picture, and it really is beautiful. Jesus is the true vine the source of life and nourishment. His Father is the vine dresser, the one responsible for care, and believers are the branches who bear the good fruit. By union with Christ, through direct care of the Father, we produce fruit to the glory of God. Now you know that vine imagery is very common in scripture. In Isaiah 5, and Jeremiah 2, in Psalm 80, which we have just sung part of in paraphrase, Israel was a vine, but Israel was a bad vine and had to be plucked up. Jesus here asserts now that he is the true vine, the true Israel, and the branches that are in him bring forth good fruit, or else he cuts them off. And of course, Judas is the example. Judas, the one who had been Jesus' disciple, who, along with the rest, did mighty and miraculous works, who was unsuspected by the others for his traitorous behavior, and yet he was an evil man. And Jesus dismissed him, and soon Judas was to show exactly what he was really like. But these words were not spoken to Judas. These words were only spoken to his true disciples. Now think about the context as we know it. Jesus knows, as he prepares his disciples for what is immediately ahead, that they are still very proud. They think highly of themselves. Not long before, we know through the gospel reports that they had argued about, among themselves about greatness. Who will sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom? In chapter 13, he teaches them about humility and about service to one another by means of foot washing. And now here in chapter 15, he reminds them again that anything good that they do comes only from him. Now notice Jesus' claim to sovereignty that we find in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus' words are emphatic. He's effectively saying to them, look around and think of yourselves. You're not here because of your choice. You're, here, you're not here because of your action. You're not here because of your initiative. I chose you. You are here because I called you from before time. You are appointed by me. These words were preparation on the part of Jesus for the maelstrom that was about to engulf these men. As they walked towards the Mount of Olives, Jesus knows that the storm is about about to break. And they must remember his sovereignty as they are nearly drowned in the circumstances that are before them. So why does Jesus say this? Why did he choose them? Well, he tells them that he chose them, even as they are about to scatter. He chose them to bear fruit. And that's what a living vine or a living branch in a vine does. It brings forth useful fruit. When we first moved to Escondido 16 years ago, we had a couple of fruit trees in our side yard, an apricot and two two peach trees. They bore fruit beautifully for the first few years, and then we started to notice that the apricot tree was no longer producing. Then slowly the branches began to die, and we learned that it had been attacked by beetles, and it was dead. And we had to cut it down because it wasn't good anymore. In fact, in some ways it was a danger because it was dead. It was gone. The peach trees are still there, and every year in June or around the first of July, we very much enjoy the fruit that comes from those peaches. But the apricot is long gone. Jesus' sovereign purpose is that these disciples would know his power at work in and through them and produce fruit. Now, what is the fruit? Interestingly, the text very uh, tells us very plainly, and interestingly, it's love and joy and peace. That's what the fruit is in the text. The first three of the things that Paul mentions when he describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians five twenty two and following. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples that they ought to produce much fruit in verse 5, an abundance of fruit. As the branch is in the vine, as the branch draws its strength and nourishment from the vine, as vital union with Christ is a reality, then fruit comes forth. Jesus is teaching his disciples that the Christian life is not about our determination to do something, but rather it's about Christ's fruit growing through us. We love him because he first loved us. Notice how these three things are present in the context. Love. In verse 12, the Lord speaks to them about the love that is necessary. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. Jesus here picks up on themes that he has introduced earlier. In chapter 13, when John begins to recount the upper room discourse and describes to us Jesus' humility in washing their feet, he tells us that he did this because he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the end. The love that Jesus is about to demonstrate by his death and resurrection is a motivating power in the life of the disciples that they might love each other. There's a reference to that in the words that Jesus speaks in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus calls his disciples to commit themselves to each other, and to love each other as they are in union with him. This is the fruit that comes forth from the vine. Secondly, Jesus speaks about joy. Notice how in verse 11 he describes a fullness of joy. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now we have to be careful to understand what joy is, not define it according to culture around us but define it according to the words of scripture as the branch and the vine have a relationship so our joy is to be the joy of christ but what is that well there are some key texts in scripture that help us to understand what the joy of our lord jesus is in luke's gospel for example in chapter 10 luke says this jesus rejoiced in the holy spirit And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes, for that, Father, is your gracious will. Jesus rejoices in the sovereignty of God. And it's really an interesting passage to investigate because Jesus rejoices that the truth is hidden from some, but revealed to others because he is satisfied to trust in his Father's will and depend upon that will. Jesus' joy is a reliance in God and his working, whatever that might be. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that our Lord Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his companions. Why? Because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Because he was committed with his heart, to serving and loving God his Father in heaven. Here Jesus, as he prepares his disciples for the end that is soon to come, he tells them that what belongs to him, this dependence upon his Father, this love for righteousness, is the joy that ought to characterize them. And as they are united to him, as they rely upon him, as their minds are renewed by him, they see the life of Jesus' joy. The sovereign God ruling over all, knowing fullness of joy themselves. Love and joy. What about peace? I stopped reading in verse 17 for the sake of time. If we had continued on beginning in verse 18 and following, Jesus there speaks. He doesn't use the word peace in this immediate context, though he's used it in chapter 14. But he speaks about the conflict that comes between believers and the world. And he uses words that are razor sharp here. If the world hates you. I wondered as I was preparing this morning. How could I even say the word hate. In such a way to convey the evil that is present in that world. If that word. If the world hates you. Now I think that what Jesus is saying here. Is that peace is the opposite of the hatred of the world. They may hate you but they hated me. What comes upon you came upon me. And it comes upon you because you are in me. Expect to receive what I have received. And effectively, be at peace. Be at peace in this. Recognize that the world will come after you with fury. But be at peace. Isn't that a great consolation? When we are in the world and when the world hates us. The peace that we have is with God. It's not with the evil system in which we live, but it is with our Father in heaven. Now, there's so much more that we need to see. We we should spend time considering the source. Over and over, Jesus in chapter 14 and in chapter 15 and in chapter 16 speaks about the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who comes when Jesus goes away and empowers the disciples to know what it is to live a life of love and joy and peace. We ought to take the time to notice how, in our immediate context, prayer is the means by which this fruit is born as we are united to the true vine. In fact, we have wonderful promises here. Look for a moment just at verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. Not words intended to satisfy our carnal desires, but rather a promise to see Christ work his power through us, that we might bear this fruit. We're not left on our own. But we cry out to the Father, we glorify the Father, and we ask him through fruit-bearing that we might be like our Savior. You know, at harvest time, the farmer receives praise, the produce of his field. Go to that farm stand because what you will find there is really good. So also God receives praise when his people bear good fruit. The production of fruit by prayer brings forth good good fruit. This is God's promise that we might grow and that we might bear spiritual fruit. Now, this is always based upon God's prior work, not our efforts. It's not self produced. The farmer is at work, he provides the right environment. It is always based upon God's continued work. As we pray, we cry out to him to continue to produce these things among his people. And we must never forget that everything good comes only from him and not from ourselves. Why are we chosen? Not to be proud like his disciples, but to be humble and to be dependent and to bring forth fruit to glorify God. With a week of finals or exams and papers before you, remember this. You are united to Christ. You are united to the true vine. Bring forth good fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God.